Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Today's October 16th. You're with a virtual City Club forum. Again, we're live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partner, and we're very grateful for their support and their partnership. Today, we're talking about the role of technology and innovation. And that's the role of tech and innovation in how we design and plan our cities and our communities. Now, one way to think about this is, should cities be leading change? Or should cities be simply accommodating or adapting or just enabling innovation? And what should a 21st century city look and feel like? And further, how far off are Cleveland and Ohio's other cities from that vision? These questions are at the heart of the 21st Century City Symposium, which is coordinated by the city of Cleveland and the Urban Land Institute in Cleveland, ULI Cleveland. And this symposium was supposed to be held this month due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was moved to March 2nd and 3rd, 2021, and it will take place virtually. But today we celebrate the spirit of this upcoming symposium by talking with two leaders about some of the best practices that will allow cities, and specifically Cleveland, to maximize their future prosperity. They'll discuss what Cleveland needs to do to seize the opportunities presented by new technologies to create a more inclusive and resilient city for our population. Joining us are Adi Tomer. He's a fellow at the, at the Metropolitan Policy Program of the Brookings Institution, who also leads their Metropolitan Infrastructure Initiative. His work focuses on metropolitan infrastructure usage patterns. That's a really hard thing to say sometimes, metropolitan infrastructure usage patterns, including personal and freight transportation and the intersections between infrastructure and technology development. He holds a master's in public policy from American University and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Florida. Also joining us is Cleveland's planning director, Freddie L. Collier. He's a frequent City Club speaker. Mr. Collier has more than 20 years' experience in community lending and urban planning. He joined the Cleveland City Planning Commission in 1999 and was appointed by Mayor Frank G. Jackson to serve as the director of city planning in 2014. Our format today is a little bit different than what we usually do. First, Mr. Tomer will deliver some remarks, and then we'll bring in Freddie L. Collier, Jr., Director of City Planning, for the moderated conversation. And we'll end, as we always do, with your questions. If you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. Adi Tomer, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thanks for having me, Dan. Um, Northeast Ohio is so fortunate to have an institution like the City Club, plus an amazing partner at IdeaStream to broadcast these kinds of public dialogues. So I really appreciate the opportunity to join you all today. Uh, so again, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adi Tomer, and I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, DC. Except I'm not actually a Washington, DC resident anymore. For the last three and a half years, our family has actually lived right here in Greater Cleveland. Like many of you, our little crew didn't land here by accident. My wife, Margot, grew up just down the street from the house where we now raise our three kids. 
And as someone who grew up in Florida, which everyone knows is a place where no one is actually from, I've always been amazed at her family's Northeast Ohio roots. From one side, the Delameters arrived all the way back in the 19th century to Cleveland. And at the beginning of the 20th century, the Russos made their way to Forest City. My guess would be that while the names may be different, many of you draw your family tree with similar brushstrokes. So why did so many people all make their way to this little corner of the world? Well, whether we're talking about Cleveland or Buffalo, San Francisco or London, it's almost always the same story. People are always chasing economic opportunities related to the technology of their time. For thousands upon thousands of new arrivals to Cleveland, it was the steel mills, the oil refineries, the railroads, the automobile manufacturing plants, all cutting edge technologies that birthed the industrial revolution, powered the American century, and often delivered a better life for those who clocked into work each day. Cleveland and its people were a global success because this community was at the center of innovation. But Cleveland's challenges, many of which remain today, find their root in those same technologies, the pollution, the segregation, the sprawl. Tech, for good or ill, is always rooted in place. But technology doesn't sit still and nor do the cities built around it. And today, we're in the throes of an entirely new industrial era, the digital age. Now, I'm not just talking about some fun new gadgets, cool new toys you gawk at in Target while you're shopping. The combination of computing and telecommunications has already re begun to remake every component of our daily lives, what many call the platform economy. Even this event, like huge portions of our daily lives during the pandemic, is made possible due to interconnected digital tech. So as it always has, Cleveland must continue to compete around today's technology if it wants to prosper. Except we're not in the same place as 1830 or 1930. Millions already live here. A community already stands in this place. Which begs the question, how do legacy markets continue to thrive in the digital age? Now, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would suggest this. Cleveland can compete if it focuses not just on the what, but more so on the who and the where. Sure, every metro area will need companies that continue to innovate around the tools of the day. And Cleveland, like every other metro area, is going to need public policies and private investment to accelerate deployment and adoption of all the new technologies that are coming our way. But we can only maximize our growth if local leaders, from the formal halls of power to community nonprofits, focus on benefiting all people and all neighborhoods. Simply put, competing in the digital age requires a culture of collaboration more than ever before. Our team at Brookings studies the American economy in all kinds of ways, and my work focuses on the intersection between economic growth, land use, and infrastructure. From that perspective, I see three major national competitions taking place, all of equal import, of which every metro area is both competing against its peers and its own past. The first is a competition around innovation. Which place can do a better job to turn ideas into entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs into growing businesses, and growing businesses into magnets for talented people? And what's the bonus prize for the winners? They get to attract the private capital that will supercharge their economic flight path. The second competition is around resilience. This summer has been just another ominous reminder of our environmental fragility. And I don't just mean the West Coast fires or the storm surges along the Gulf. 
I also mean the emergence of yet another infectious disease, which environmental scientists have warned for years will grow in frequency. Prosperous metros will take advantage of the physical assets they already have and protect the natural assets that we've too often undervalued. The third competition is one of inclusion. Now, it's not news that a more inclusive economy is also a more prosperous one. We know that regions that create education, workforce, and wealth-building opportunities for all of her residents, no matter their skin tone, their national origin, or who they pray to, will be more competitive. But among 2020's many cruel events were the stark reminders of just how far we have to go. Across all of these competitions, to innovate, to adapt, to include, digital technology already plays a key role. But before I jump into those, I want to take a minute to situate Cleveland within those competitions. Using the Metro Monitor that we publish at Brookings, it's clear that Metro Cleveland has had a mixed economic decade. There is good news. Productivity is up 9%. Average wages are up 7%. And relative poverty fell. Northeast Ohio's Regional Sewer District has a purposeful capital campaign to manage stormwater overflows and the coming climate threats. But there's also enduring challenges. Like many places, jobs and young firms keep falling. Racial inclusion is still too far away, with gaps in employment and poverty rates continuing to hover around 10%. And we continue to see major inequality by geography, with urban and exurban neighborhoods heading in different directions. Nor are these statistics unique to Brookings. Jason Segedy, the Director of Planning and Urban Development in Akron, works with our colleagues at the Economic Innovation Group. This week, they released their updated Distressed Communities Index, and I recommend you check Jason's Twitter thread about how performance looks in Cleveland, Akron, and the neighborhoods in between. So as Cleveland continues to chart its future, it's impossible to overlook the role of digital technology in it. Turn on your television or streaming device for an hour or more, and you're bound to see a few things. You'll definitely be told who to vote for in November. Someone will try to sell you some light beer, especially during a Browns game. And you'll also see vague promises of a new kind of future. The company logos may be a household name, or they may not, but every one of these future commercials will tell you they're building a new tomorrow. They're designing cars that drive themselves. They'll connect you to, by video to your family thousands of miles away. They'll let you bank anywhere you go and ship you dinner or a box of paper towels right to your front door. These are the emerging platforms of our digital age, and they're coming no matter what Cleveland's companies and residents do. They're financed by global titans, designed by the world's best engineers. They leverage telecommunications networks to connect computers and storage all around the world, allowing you to access something they call the cloud. And like that weather metaphor, these platforms really do surround us everywhere we go. But break down what they're doing, and it's easy to see that digital technologies are just an evolution. Modern banking has been around for centuries. Now they'll let you deposit a check from your bedroom. We have museums for ancient paper maps. Now we can route our trips, whether by foot or bike or bus or car, to any destination we want. Yet while these technologies could be invented anywhere, their impacts will be felt everywhere. And that's where the role of local planning comes into play. Cleveland may not invent most of these products, but local decisions will determine whether its population is able to access, adopt, and thrive in this digital environment. On the consumer side, that puts an enormous emphasis on broadband and digital skills. 
It's not enough to have broadband in some neighborhoods. It must run everywhere, be affordable to all, and all residents must have the digital skills to know how to use computers and the internet. Imagine trying to look for a job today if you don't have those skills. And it's a similar situation around finance. Those excluded from our traditional banking system, including black and brown entrepreneurs who too often face extra burdens, now face even more barriers. This digital divide is Cleveland's problem. On the civic side, governments and real estate owners must collaborate to leverage all the new opportunities to monitor our world. I have confidence that companies will keep developing algorithms, but it's up to municipal governments to use them for good, to mandate a building code that reduces energy consumption, or to design streets that prioritize pedestrian safety over driving speeds. It's about setting local priorities using global tech. We also can use data to confirm the truths we already know. It's not news to suggest Northeast Ohio has a land use problem. We have incredible neighborhoods in our urban cores, often underpopulated for the infrastructure we already built. It's an environmental and social tragedy that these neighborhoods are undervalued as we pour more concrete over the former forests and prairies we need to protect. Digital technology can help us better monitor growth, but it's up to us to adjust our regional politics to address what's unsustainable. See, no matter the new shiny toy, it always comes back to people and where they live. Digital technology only intensifies our need for financial inclusion, workforce development, and equitable community action. Nor does every metro area have to have all the answers. With digital technology creating new platforms, the opportunity to copy what works in other places and avoid what doesn't couldn't be greater. The best leaders are going to be humble enough to admit it and network with their peers. With that in mind, what could an inclusive neighborhood-driven agenda for the digital age look right here in Cleveland? I'd like to see a few clear features. First, it would include a skills plan from the cradle to the retirement party. Children should have omnipresent digital connectivity and the chops and equipment to use it. Workers of all ages should be fluent in the skills needed in our digital world. As the new saying goes, you never know where the next Steve Jobs may be born. Next, it would involve even more risk-taking from our financial community. Bets would be made not just among traditional entrepreneurs, but in new neighborhoods and with new faces. We're so lucky to be a traditional financial hub. Let's keep pressing that advantage. And where I'm most passionate is this. Our agenda would involve a leveraging of the timeless buildings and urban design found in our central cities and inner ring suburbs. Every data point we have shows humanity will need to become more resource conscious. And that especially includes the land we consume. Metro Cleveland cannot thrive until we solve this problem. Fortunately, so much of this work is already underway. Just this week, the Cleveland Innovation Project, led by the Cleveland Foundation, Fund for Our Economic Future, Greater Cleveland Partnership, Jumpstart, and Team NEO, put forward a vision to deliver technology-driven, inclusive growth to the region by 2030. Metro Health, Digital C, Cuyahoga County, and the Gunn Foundation continue to chip away at the digital divide. And my favorite part of each of these examples, they all involve collaboration. But there's always more work to do, and harnessing digital technology is a long-term opportunity. So for those who are passionate about technology and neighborhoods, make sure you stay in touch with the Urban Land Institute in the city of Cleveland. As Dan already mentioned, 
This spring, they'll be hosting a major forum to keep digging into these topics. As you can tell, all of this is personal for me. We made a conscious choice to bring our children here, and it's working. They're thriving because for us, Cleveland offers that potent mix of family and community that many places no longer have. I may not be from here, but it's easy for me to now call Cleveland home. But I cannot promise myself or any of you that these kids are gonna be here in two decades. Are we going to invest in our people, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, and chart a path towards racial inclusion and innovation? Will we recognize the climate realities and start building together instead of so far apart? Will we make sure our kids have jobs in Northeast Ohio? Their geographic future is in our hands. And I sure hope I get to see my grandkids grow up just down the street from where I'm sitting with you today. Again, thank you to the City Club and NPR for this platform. And I'm excited to keep this conversation going with Freddie and the rest of you over the next hour. All right, thanks a lot, Eddie. And uh, we're really uh, inspired by your words and your perspective. But what I wanna do uh, with you, Eddie, is kinda drill down. And I think our audience members really wanna hear uh, not just the challenges in front of us, but obviously what are we doing? And the other question is, are we being honest with ourselves about what we don't know and what we need to find out quickly? As Adi alluded to, uh, the City of Cleveland and the Urban Land Institute will be embarking on a symposium that really starts to challenge us as a community. Although there's many initiatives that are taking place right now, and there are many efforts going on, some of which uh, Adi alluded to, the question is of pace, of resources, and of who benefits. These are, very three, these are three very important aspects. So Adi, I wanna jump into some Q&A a little bit with you uh, so that the audience can really start to unpack some of the things that you just spoke about from a high level. And one of the things that um, obviously that's in front of us right now is COVID-19. But I have to be honest, when we think about COVID-19, COVID-19 has acted as a lighter fluid on a flame that was already burning. And when we look at some of the topics that you mentioned, these things were being pursued pre-COVID. And now that COVID has exposed us and let us know that we need to step up the pace, I have one question for you. When we think about collaboration and when we think about leadership and we have to focus on setting aside our individual agendas and organizational egos, how do you think Northeast Ohio and the city of Cleveland fares with respect to that collaborative spirit and attitude that it's gonna to take to position our city and our region. So much to unpack in that, Freddie. Um, and, and I appreciate getting right into it. Um, we've been watching cities and metro areas all over the country grapple with this uh, almost unconsciousable level of right human pain. Uh, and um, on a, from a health perspective, and the economic hurt that is sustained, um, you know, don't don't believe the hype. Like you know, the the level of permanent unemployment is rising, and in particular, it's most pernicious among our lowest income, the the, the lowest earners among our workforce, right? So these are the folks we're really the most concerned about on a whole bunch of different levels. Um, that only increases the urgency as you're bringing up that folks in the community 
set themselves on a path to collaborate. Now, look, you know, I, I might live here. I might like pay my taxes here, uh, but right, I work in Washington, and and I, I don't think there's many things worse than someone right knocking on the door, proverbial door, and saying, right, I'm from Washington. I'm here to help. Uh, you know, there's a lot of danger in that. Um, what strikes me as is really important for Cleveland going forward. In other words, I'm, I'm not here to evaluate, but let me kind of throw some things that are important as you know, kind of uh, North Stars, um, is that provincialness has no place in the 21st century. Um, there, there is no need to reinvent the wheel in every community. Um, one of the fantastic elements of our current digital environment is that narratives pass in like with such incredible speed from place to place. Um, so we can learn so much so quickly. Um, Related to that, we need to have humility too, right? We need to figure out how places, how regions yeah. and key actors can collaborate more. Um, and again, like I kind of mentioned, I, I think what's really important is to put people at the center of this. Too often, we find places want to become like the next Silicon Valley. Like, you know, you know who wants to be the next Silicon Valley? Every place wants to be the next Silicon Valley. <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. almost, it's just, it's just so, such an obvious thing to say. And you're not gonna be, because no one is, because the next Silicon Valley is probably just Silicon Valley. Um, what you can do is invest in the people you have, though. Take advantage of the market opportunities that are there. You know that was why I was so excited about the innovations announcements this week um, from the from the partnership. Is look, this is the the route we want to go, but then making sure that what's buttressed behind it are investments in people. And as we kind of, I know a passion you and I both have, right, is that we invest in neighborhoods we've already got and the people who live there and don't skip over places and, and make people feel and actually experience a, 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 an element of being left behind. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that you alluded to, you know, uh, that's very important is resource. You know, uh, there's a lot of numbers that are being thrown around. And one of the questions I've always asked myself is, you know, we look at the COVID-19 scenario and how this country and this nation can pull the trigger on trillions of dollars in response to a problem that existed prior to the actual issue they're trying to fix immediately. If the value proposition was there prior to COVID, we would be in such a great position. And I think the value proposition uh, that is being propagated you know, uh, at the federal level obviously has hurt us. And this election is going to dictate whether we go up or whether we go down. And to that end, uh, there's hope uh, with respect to some of the thinking in D.C., though, which I want to kind of touch on with you, uh, A.D., that's I think is extremely um, important. Um, the Move Forward uh, Act, uh, which is a uh, piece that's uh, pending at the federal level, and it looks at uh, $1.5 trillion dollars and contemplates a couple of things that uh, I think is uh, in alignment with a lot of our value propositions in the urban core. So 500 billion uh, for rebuilding the nation's transportation system. Uh, this would include uh, rail, uh, investments in public transportation, uh, about 130 billion uh, would go for infrastructure target at high poverty schools um, in areas where facilities need to be improved. And also about $70 billion uh, in investment in modernizing the energy grid infrastructure, which is Byzantine, uh, to say the least. I live in a, a neighborhood in the city of Cleveland, and my power has gone out three times, you know, over the past, you know, three days just for, from simple rain events. 
And then there's this 100 billion that's being uh, allocated for affordable high-speed broadband internet. So when the resources are there, how can cities ensure that they're shovel ready for lack of a better word, because this alignment is critical. And I've always you know, uh, preached to my team and our staff about thinking about what's next and positioning yourself for that. And you know, that accounting is what planning is all about. So just talk to me a little bit about alignment and how cities need to align uh, with the resources that are not here, but that are coming very quickly. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. We get it all the time as, uh, as, as folks who work in D.C. Uh, you, you, get it, you get fly-ins from cities, counties, state delegations, right? You know, they're, all, they're all going to Congress. Everyone's a lobbyist, right, in effect, in D.C. Yep. And the common answer that we always start with is come correct in the sense of what your local plans are. So exactly, Freddie, how you're describing what you all are doing, both in your department and ideally right across all of City Hall and ideally at the, certainly Cuyahoga County and, and the four surrounding counties too, um, that you understand where you wanna go. You've got your resources lined up. Back to your first question, you know, major institutional actors are behind that. You know, we are so fortunate here to have a legacy of wealth, which often leads itself to a legacy of philanthropy. So how can we make sure that those major actors are behind it, that the big corporate titans that are still here, which is a, another asset, are behind those investments? Sure. And, and even if we're talking about investing in the built environment, which I'll get to in a, in a split second, like, look, you can't, you can't divorce that stuff from workforce development, from our education system, right. right? We want a talented labor pool. Like, that right. is the secret to place. It's like if it's location, location, location for real estate and economic development, it's talent, talent, talent. So Cleveland needs to, you know, like I said, I'll repeat it, right? Like, they need to come correct in that sense for themselves. And when you're ready in that mm -hmm. sense, there's much more... Um, the ear is a little bit easier to, to bend in Washington, right? Because they want to make investments where they know they're going to get an ROI. So they can broadcast to all those other communities, mm -hmm. hey, look what we did here, and it paid off. Now, sure. look, like, let's not, we're in such a complicated political moment, and, and I'm happy to talk with, with anyone in the community here over the next bit of time we've got, right, about what's happening in Washington. If you want to sure. know what's going on at the polls, go to 538. They'll get you covered. But if you want to talk about culture, I'm happy to reflect on it a little bit. Um, it's tense. It's a, in some ways less tense in D.C. than the national media rhetoric. But when it comes to if you're a fan of cities and metropolitan areas, there is a party that is willing to overlook their needs and there is a party that is willing to invest in them. You can fill in the gaps on that. If the Senate flips to Democrats here in a few weeks and, uh, and Vice President Biden wins, that will be good for investment in cities and metropolitan areas in red states and in blue states. Um, and we're clearly coming up on a big moment there. So as you pointed out, there's a few clear agenda items that are on the docket. Uh, number one is we can expect to see significant investment in transportation assets inside cities and inner ring suburbs, especially for the vital transit connectivity that we need to build back up after decades of disinvestment. And ideally that's coupled with more sensible investments around housing to help get more infill development and disincentivize a lot of this high cost investment we've had on the periphery. Broadband is absolutely on the radar and it's not just gonna be uh, connecting rural areas, it's gonna be about making it more affordable for households who live in the core, right? And so uh, I am confident that Dem Democrats are gonna try to crack the code on this one on how to get more money in there. And then for intermetropolitan connectivity, 
there was just commentary in Politico this week about how, you know, Joe Biden, right, the Amtrak, the, the Amtrak vice president could be the Amtrak yeah. president. <laughs> um, you know, he wants to make investments right. in, in, in rail. And, you know, I, yes. look, we live in a different, different aviation age than we used to. And I think there's sure. something to be argued for making some investments in, in high-speed rail between communities that'll help that trade of which so much still happens between Pittsburgh and Dayton and Cincinnati and Columbus and Cincinnati uh, and Cleveland and Detroit, right? Like there is an economic linkage here. Uh, so there could be a market for that as well. Absolutely. You know, I want to drill down a little bit more on sort of the place aspect of this, you know, because people, place, opportunity, you know, is, is the, a real important algorithm for us here locally. And it's something that I know the mayor has been very uh, bullish about with respect to the opportunity side of that and how people in place uh, need to produce something for those who, who occupy these places. I want to talk to you a little bit about innovation districts. Um, and this is something that was actually introduced uh, many years back, uh, actually from Bruce Katz, uh, if you recall, uh, from Brookings. And um, the city of Cleveland, the state of Ohio, um, the state of Ohio is actually uh, identified and are, are uh, moving uh, on an innovation district in Cincinnati uh, that was announced earlier this year. Uh, that was a partnership with the University of Cincinnati. Columbus has an innovation district uh, in partnership with Ohio State University. Cleveland could be next. And we're positioning ourselves uh, uh, to leverage that possibility. And these innovation districts obviously are very place-based because they take advantage of the 21st century worker. And it, it's designed to really increase collaboration between firms, uh, big or small, the universities, and really start to blend sort of the knowledge and the workforce together and create a place where you have critical mass, you have the convergence of these assets, and you also are you know, creating a synergy uh, within that particular geography. So we have a couple of uh, investments here in the city of Cleveland that are infrastructure related, um, that have some significant land assets like an opportunity corridor we're looking at opportunities like this. When we talk about place and we talk about people and that connective tissue that really is uh, almost a commodity for a city, talk a little bit uh, about how that people, place, and innovation mix is important uh, for our future economy if we're going to be competitive. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we spent a generation, you know, Freddie, you and I grew up in this, probably most of the people who are listening today, where we wanted to put innovative companies behind a wall in like in the forest. <laughs> like, you know, this is there right. are these companies all over the place. Like you go to Research Triangle and Raleigh Durham, like it's just like a an endless wave of these isolated companies. I mean, right, like I mean, just break down the words office park, right? I mean, it tells you everything you need to know. You know, we, we, right. we didn't need to put offices in a park before. Like, we just put them in the same place and people could collaborate, connect, and workers had the same places to go. You know, why do we think not just rail lines here in Cleveland, but all over the country all go into downtowns, right? Because that's where we centralize those kinds of not just professional opportunities, but the, the opportunities to collaborate. And that's what innovation district literature is really all about is let's put people back closer together. You know, again, I work on the infrastructure right. side mostly. The part that pains me, and I'm sure it'll hit a note with you as a, as a planner too, right? Is like, we have so undervalued the concept of distance. 
we get in our cars, especially in this community, we don't blink an eye that we're driving five miles, 10 miles. You can't walk <laughs> and often even bike five or 10 miles. Think about how far apart we're putting each other. Um, so right. a big part of what I think is so amazing for Cleveland is you have, and again, I say this as a Floridian where it, everything's built around highways and private walled gardens of houses, right? Yo, you have these urban assets, these neighborhoods that were built before the automobile. And they are designed for a culture of both social and professional collaboration. And oh, by the way, they're more resilient for our climate future. So those assets, you can't pay for those. <laughs> Places like, for those who are familiar with a place called Tyson's Corner, which is in you know, suburban DC, they are spending billions, that's with a B, to remake a suburban area to fit rail, to try to make it more walkable and bikeable. It's hard. Right. We've got that right, right. right, right around the opportunity <laughs> corridor, right? So, but you know, Eddie, one of the things like that Cleveland. you see, yeah, one yeah. of the things that you see though with that is when you see like these lifestyle centers, for example, which uh, actually are reestablishing these urban environments, you know, in uh, a suburban context, you know, it's almost like uh, wanting the amenities but not the other things that go with it, the grit, the reality of having, you know, uh, diverse people who frequent these, these places. So that kind of leads me into my next question for you though, uh, with respect to equity and inclusion, uh, not just in uh, the workforce realm, but also when we start to think about re-investing uh, in urban core communities making sure that the people who have occupied these communities and lived there and, and, and raised their children there and experienced these communities when they were in dire straits have the opportunity to access the new revival that is taking place. You know, people talk about, you know, gentrification, you know, and it's, it's really used in, you know, advocacy circles very frequently. But when you talk about what creates gentrification, it's public policy. And when we think about how we need to uh, revamp policy in this new digital age, really, what does that look like? I'm just going to share with you, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, key sort of points um, here. Uh, when it comes to sort of the uh, way in which we invest in communities, particularly uh, doubling down on the broadband conversation, we know what the statistics are. Um, our uh, low-income minority communities are very uh, disconnected. And we tend to have in Cleveland a lot of ingenuity uh, from organizations and individuals from the ground up. So you mentioned Digital C earlier. And the energy and effort that it takes to work from the grassroots level upward can be daunting for many organizations. And I think this is why this alignment conversation with what's coming down from the federal level and what's coming up from the community and making sure we at the government level are really marrying those things. That ingenuity that comes from organizations like that has to be harnessed. And obviously those resources we have to uh, acquire and account for. So from a government perspective and looking at local government, as sort of the, um, the nexus of those two worlds. We talked about uh, leading change or accommodating it. In that context, how would you say cities need to posture themselves? Is it driving the change or is it being adaptable to the changes and the innovation that's coming? 
Yeah. Well, and look, I, I know we want to go. I want. I know we want to go to callers and and, and folks in the community. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll try to be. I'll try to be brief so we, we can answer your questions too. Sure. Um, both Freddie and me. Uh, but I, you know, look, the easy answer is you want to be both. <laughs> uh, you know, you you want to you want to recognize. That's what I was kind of trying to get on the opening remarks, right? Like, there's certain patterns here you can't yeah. control. You know, like digital tech, it's coming, dude. Like, we didn't invent smartphones here. Like, we just all use them. Um, <laughs> so some of these elements are coming. Uh, and we've got to make sure we manage them. We make sure they're inclusive. But we, we've also need to be sensible with our policies to make sure that they recognize our cultural and community priorities. Um, right. We can't just lean on policies of the past because chances are we've lost the thread on why they passed them in the first place. So how can we make sure when you bring up the concept of gentrification, how can we make sure that every neighborhood is affordable for everyone, right? Housing of all kinds, but at the same time, incentivize people to live in a, in a community that's mixed in terms of incomes, of socio backgrounds, right? Like that, that's a culture you see in other cities that frankly you see a little bit less in Cleveland. And, and, and I know we can do more. Um, starting with purpose is a good way to, is a good start. Adito Mayer is the Metropolitan Policy Program Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Freddie Collier, Jr. is Director of City Planning for the City of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop with the City Club, and you're with the City Club Friday Forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN Ideastream in Cleveland. If you have a question for Adi or Freddie or both, text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Tweet it at the City Club. We are now moving to audience questions on this Friday forum. And uh, here's a question for both of you. Um, in his TED Talk, the mayor of Bogota, Enrique Peñalosa, said that in advanced cities, uh, advanced cities aren't a place where even the poor use cars, but rather where the rich use buses. If we want Cleveland to be known as an advanced city, how would technology best be used to attract public transit users from all demographic groups? What are some of the trends or technologies you see being implemented elsewhere that could be applied here? Adi? Oh, I, I can start, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts, Freddie. Sure. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. um, this is a perfect way to plug some work we just put out this week. Uh, the Brookings Institution, everything we give away is for free, or that we publish is free, so go to our website. What we researched was that uh, the average trip distance in America is seven miles in major metropolitan areas, and it can get even longer than that outside of them. So part of the reason we see so few people take transit in America is it doesn't work for them. They live too far, they commute to another suburb, there isn't a direct connection. So I'd actually push back on the question a little bit in this sense. You know, we have actually an incredible legacy here in Cleveland of fixed rail assets, an incredible regional transit agency. Um, what we need to get, what we need to happen is have more people live in the service area where the transit can best connect them. So it's, Absolutely. in other words, the tech is already there. We invented it a few hundred years ago. Uh, we just need to get people in places where they can use it more. And look, the climate realities are coming. So we're not going to all be able to drive as much as we have in the past. I, I think you're going to see more moves like that in the future. Freddie Collier. That's, absolutely. And I think you're seeing a lot of innovation around mobility um, in Northeast Ohio. Uh, when you think about uh, the scooter program and what that has produced as far as ridership, uh, the ridership has been phenomenal. And when we think about how land use and particularly regulatory uh, scenarios like form-based zoning and making sure that we create high density walkable neighborhoods where people are moving from node to node using public transportation and walking to their destinations. These are very important pieces of the puzzle. 
A couple of examples, uh, one has happened and is uh, obviously uh, thriving and has been for uh, a while now, which is Euclid Corridor. That was a $200 million investment. If you live in an apartment along that corridor, you can go out your front door, take a rapid to the airport, catch a plane, go on a trip, come back, come back to your doorstep without turning a key, literally. Not to mention having access to our, our lakefront and to other assets like Shaker Square. So Cleveland is, is, is kind of set up uh, uh, with respect to having these types of assets. The other, though, component of this, uh, which is really what the future is about, is how do we rethink our roadways and our streets? Um, COVID has also introduced some opportunities for us to examine alternative uses of our right-of-ways. We were a city of 950,000 people at one point. Um, obviously, that have, has changed considerably. So what's with all the pavement? So a lot of the work uh, that we've been doing is really looking differently at what the streetscape means. It's not a place just for vehicles. It's a space for people. It's a space for pedestrians, bikes, cars, uh, you name it, and all types of other devices. But with that, it will require a different type of philosophy from the federal level, a different type of funding mechanism that allows for cities to do innovative things on the ground. And I think through that sort of culture change and understanding of some of the things that uh, we're, we're all talking about, you know, policymakers will be able to make that shift. I want to probe what you just said a little bit. The last major project that prioritized something other, major transportation project that prioritized something other than automobile traffic in greater Cleveland was the Euclid Corridor project that you mentioned. Um, and that transformed uh, a roadway to prior and and did sort of physical infrastructure, built environment stuff that prioritized, put a priority on on transit, on rapid transit. Yep. Yep. The biggest project happening right now is the Opportunity Corridor, which I Correct. think may have a multi-purpose trail alongside it. It does. It has a dedicated trail. Yes, but it's still really it, I, that dedicated trail does not really prioritize people-powered movement over automobile-powered movement. So there may be a disconnect there. So let me, let me say this about uh, Opportunity Corridor. And many of us who know public policy and understand public policy know that uh, the value proposition behind a political or uh, policy move is what matters most. The original value proposition behind uh, Opportunity Corridor was not what we're talking about, Dan. You know that, and everyone in Cleveland now knows that. Uh, however, due to a seismic shift in the philosophical outlook of uh, government locally who had to really fight to ensure that Opportunity Corridor was a project that created opportunity. I mean, you're talking about a street that had cul-de-sacs, north-south streets that had cul-de-sacs, which would literally cut off the neighborhoods. How can you have economic value if the, the actual investment doesn't connect communities? The other component of that was there was no contemplation of having multimodal uh, uh, options on Opportunity Corridor. We made that possible. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the emphasis on land remediation was not present, which we made possible. So these are all things that have moved us away from a old school philosophy rooted in structural racism and other types of systemic issues 
that we all know have traditionally plagued communities. And I say to people that this is not a uh, speedboat that you can just whip around. This is a, a battleship that you have to turn when we talk about culture change. These situations that we're dealing with now has made it safe for elected officials and others to be more deliberate about the systemic issues that have created the scenarios that's requiring us to be more innovative to address them. And race is not necessarily, uh, has been necessarily the, uh, the, at the core of the conversation as widely discussed as you see it now. What has happened over the last year has made it okay to have the conversation and to bring it to the forefront. Not every agency and their mother is talking about and what we need to do and how we need to fix things for all people. That's been the scenario. This is not a new conversation. And I think part of the work that's taking place, and this is why we have such an opportunity here, we can potentially get ahead of it with this platform that AD talked about with tech and, 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 and this digital innovation. We can create a new agenda and we can ensure that equity truly becomes a superior growth model. I appreciate you responding to that because I know that that criticism is out there and I think it's important to um, to make sure that we're, we talk about all of these things as connected. Another question for, for both of you. The city has 29 designated historic districts and over 300 individual landmarks scattered throughout the 17 wards. The landmarks legislation charges the city to preserve these important pieces of history and educate the public of their importance. What can be done to capitalize on these resources that would both preserve them and stabilize the population base so that population growth is dispersed throughout the city and is more organic rather than forced? Two things I would say to that. We talk about adaptation. Uh, adaptive reuse of these facilities are very important. But what is equally as important is if in fact these are assets, we have to not let them get to the point of impossible remediation. Too often we call out these landmarks as being important, but they're not mothball. They sit and they deteriorate over time. That is gonna require a different type of resource to be able to fund and stabilize these structures so that they can be brought to market by development interest. And again, this is a legacy city. So these uh, assets are uh, literally scattered throughout our uh, community and then you, when you look at how disinvestment has happened over the years, particularly on the east side of the city of Cleveland, as a part of that, those historic structures also suffered the same type of, of fate that some of the neighborhoods have suffered. So now with this reinvestment in uh, inherently disadvantaged communities, particularly on the east side and near west side of the city of Cleveland, part of the strategy is targeting these older commercial buildings. Uh, you have examples like Warner and Swayze, uh, which is gonna experience a significant reinvestment. We have tremendous examples of buildings across the, uh, the west side and near east side that has undergone significant renovations. But the unfortunate thing is that these are anomalies. How does this become more mainstream? And in order for that to happen, that fiscal reinvestment in, 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 in these structures has to occur. And part of what we're seeking to do to accelerate that is to begin to commit public resources in strategic neighborhoods. Because I'm gonna tell you, man, at the end of the day, you know, uh, 
we have to, at the city, manage a finite amount of resources to address a tremendous amount of uh, 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 challenges. And we have to then target those resources in a way that we can concentrate and grow an area. It's like pouring water into a cup until it runs over. And part of the agenda right now is doubling down on where the issues are. And that's what the administration has been committed to. And that's what you're starting to see when you go into Glenville or what you're gonna see in the Buckeye neighborhood or what you're gonna see in the near west side around the Metro Health Campus in partnership with uh, all of our partners uh, over there. So again, these are very intentional plays, but just imagine, to my point earlier, what if the value proposition was different at the federal level prior to COVID about investing in urban core communities? We'd be rocking and rolling. So local communities have to not be in a position where they have to always continue to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Freddie Collier is the City of Cleveland's planning director, also with us for the City Club Friday Forum, Adito Mayor of Brookings Institution. Adi, you mentioned pedestrian safety earlier in your remarks, uh, which reminded me of Angie Schmidt's book, Right of Way, which recently came out. The City of Cleveland is committed to improving pedestrian traffic safety through its participation in the global initiative Vision Zero. Could you speak to how technologies, phone apps perhaps, can be used for pedestrians so that they can be safer on our streets? And perhaps there's some non-digital technologies that can also be implemented as well. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice to have speed limits that go down. I think that's just a white and black sign. You just change the number on it, and that might, you know, that might work for everyone. That I is mean, a look, piece dude, of technology. We, like, I think Portland, Portland, did yeah. they? Uh, they reduced the, the the they have a slogan there that twenty is plenty. Yeah. Not that easy in Ohio, unfortunately. There's got to be something for 15, too. I'm, I'm, I, my, my, my rhyming skills are not great when I'm in this pressure-filled environment. Um, you know, look, we prioritize cars for, for multiple decades, right? I mean, I think Dan was in, in to your question uh, to Freddie about, about the opportunity corridor. And, um, you know, it, it's, the, it's, it's roped into, you know, are we prioritizing at the regional scale more interchanges? Like, is that, is that, is that what we need more of? Um, you know, right. The signals we send through our transportation system says who we are as people. Like folks have to get that across their minds, right? If you build a sea of parking in front of a commercial district, if you um, prioritize drive-through, right, for food, I got no problem with fast food. I, I love it. But I'm saying what you're doing is saying, take a car, drive a car. Don't worry about the rest. And look, I get it. Being a non-native of this area of the country, you know, look, buying cars was about also making sure someone down the street had a job, right? I, I understand that. Um, but we need to reckon with the fact that we have vastly over-prioritized a mode of transportation that is good for the individual, but punishes the collective too often. The number one cause of unintentional death in America is incidents on our transportation system. I do not like that word that starts ACC, you know, even if they are that. Um, the, these are, these are avoidable problems. And one of the best ways to get people to actually move back to the city to back to Freddie's last answer is to make it more hospitable for that denser environment. And this is exactly what we've seen. Dan, you brought up Portland. Look, we, you know, my wife, Margo and I moved here from DC. Like, why do you, why do you think DC's had a Renaissance? It has the same kind of urban footprint as Cleveland, but it's prioritized non-motorized travel, right? Some of that's federal investment, mm -hmm. but a lot of it's not, right? 
It's building swaths of bike lanes. It's widening sidewalks and addressing cracks where they exist. It's getting rid of street parking. It's sending a signal to people that, hey, you don't need to drive here, right? But look, to finish up real quick, you know, we've got decades and decades of pretty consistent prioritization, not just of the automobile, but, but sprawl, frankly. And that's not gonna be easy to undo. People's yeah, wealth is tied up yeah. in their homes. Um, we continue to have a state agenda in particular in this state that is anti-urban and then a federal government that too often looks to that angle. Um, so we've got to get all kind of, <laughs> Freddie, you made the, the metaphor of a battleship, right? Like we, we've got to turn, there's multiple battleships out there and we've got to turn all of them in the same direction on this one. You know, thank goodness Chicago has, uh, thank goodness Cleveland has, has advocates and local advocates, right? Like Angie to push this message because it is really, really important for people to hear it. Freddie Collier, another question from Twitter. What top three transportation sure. ideas are we not stealing, not yet stealing from other cities? And why are we not doing this yet? So that, that's a heck of a question. I can tell you the uh, top three transportation ideas that have yet to hit Cleveland, but are in the planning phases. Um, one, uh, when we talk about inner city rail, uh, Noaka, um, my colleague Grace Gallucci, who's just absolutely uh, just, you know, forward thinking uh, with the Hyperloop Dam, which is uh, something I'm sure you've heard about and you're very familiar with, you know, moving from region to region is a conversation that is fairly new here as a result of the Hyperloop Dialogue. I think that's going to be huge for economies and for not just moving people, but moving freight. Um, so that's one thing that's really uh, uh, important. The other thing I want to emphasize, too, just with respect to transportation and, and roadways and things of that nature, people are using all types of mobility devices. I mean, we've just really embraced the notion of scooters. Um, you're seeing electric bikes. You're seeing people who can actually wrap their bike up in a backpack and, you know, uh, fold it out and, you know, uh, want to jump on the road. I've seen these electric trikes that seniors are riding and people are innovating with respect to just how they move. The infrastructure does not accommodate for that. And I think that is where the biggest challenge is going to be is not just the philosophical shift, but the financial shift and the perception associated with road safety. One of the things that we all often talk Friday, about inside of City Hall. Oh boy. One of the things that we often talk about inside of City Hall is being stuck, you know, um, in this mode of making sure that we have safety first while accommodating all of these new modes. And that's a nexus that we have yet to really, really uh, figure out. And I think that's part of where, where the, the direction that we need to go moving forward. You know, as we wrap up here, I want to point out that we, there's a few questions about sprawl. We haven't really talked about that and the, and at all. And perhaps there's the need for a follow-up conversation. I think there's a symposium coming up, so we'll address it then perhaps in early 2021. And, um, and there's a few other questions as well. This, this community has done a lot of thinking about this. I want to thank Freddie Collier from the city of Cleveland. He's the planning director there. And Adito Mayer of the Brookings Institution. It's been a great conversation. Thank you both. Thank you. Our forum today would not be possible without the partnership of the Cleveland Foundation and the Urban Land Institute Cleveland. We're grateful to them. Thanks also to our members, sponsors, donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next Friday, October 23rd, as part of our 108th annual meeting, we will welcome speaker Suzanne Nossel. She's CEO of PEN America and author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. 
You can find out more information about our annual meeting at cityclub.org. Also, a month ago, we launched a new national video series called Democracy Unchained. Our fifth episode focused on the battle, if you will, between democracy and the fossil fuel industry. And there was a conversation there specifically about Ohio's HB6 as a case study in corporate influence on policymaking. We encourage you to check it out. You can find out more about that and the earlier episodes at democracyunchained.io. That's democracyunchained.io. Speaking of democracy, thank you for voting. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, and thank you for wearing a mask. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.